What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Raphael Garcia, and I'm here with Shawan Hume. Shawan, we missed you last week, man. How you been? Uh, not too bad. Sorry about last week. Just uh, ha- got was training the kid late and couldn't get home in time and didn't want to be trying to do the show while I was recording. And plus, my phone was just acting like crazy. I didn't even get a text from you until like an hour later when you DM'd me on Twitter. And I was like, you didn't even call me. And I was like, oh, crap. It's just... I'm, Continuous events that did not work in my favor. Only thing that's good part is we didn't have to listen to me go on for half an hour about how terrible Irina Adalia's game plan was and how embarrassed Juliana Pena should be by getting submitted by two world-class strikers in her only submission losses. Because I was just going to go off. It was going to be like a four-hour show with two hours of it me rambling on those two subjects alone. So we probably dodged a bullet on that one. Uh, man, I don't even know where to start with that because the Juliana Pena one was on my radar to talk about with you, surely, and it was it was some, definitely something that kind of caught a lot of people's attention. But we're not going to dive too far into that last fight card because we had a couple of, of of interesting finishes this past week. But before we talk about that, let's go ahead and kick off the intro of this show. Uh, my name is Raphael Garcia. I'm here with Shawan Humes for episode 181 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to this show. You can catch us every week in a couple of different places. You can catch us on YouTube at MMA Ratings. Uh, you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter, MMARatings.net. Our flagship where all the content goes is MMARatings.net as well. You can find pieces written by myself, Schwan, Adam Martin, Michael Ford is the, is the man in charge there running the show. Um, our podcast, this and the Let's Talk Wrestling podcast airs once a week. You can find it on various platforms such as Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, and Apple iTunes. Me, you can catch me on Twitter at rgarcia underscore sports. And you can catch Schwan Humes at Black Jordan Brain. But as Schwan said... One, one second, about- Rafael, Rafael, Rafael. One second before we get, get into MMA. Before we get into MMA... A little bit of basketball. All, all season long, and for last year, when the Lakers picked up Ray John Rondo, everybody kept telling me, he's trash, he's no good, he can't score enough, he can't shoot enough three-pointers. I kept telling people he can control the pace of the game. He's a secondary creator when LeBron's not on the floor. He, he's a primary creator. He's an excellent ball handler. He knows how to orchestrate an offense. And in playoffs, his defense will ramp up. All I got told was, you don't know basketball. I can't believe people let people let their ki- kids train with you. Where did you used to coach? Where did you used to play? You're an idiot. And then all through the playoffs, Ray John Rondo was pretty much the determining factor to win against Portland, Houston, the Nuggets, and for the championship against the Miami Heat. Once again, proving me right and proving all the people who said I don't know basketball wrong. So not only am I dominating in the mixed martial arts sphere, I am outsmarting, out-strategizing, and outclassing in the basketball sphere as well. I have to take my victory lap. You're welcome for the advice. Any other tips or questions, you can hit me up for MMA or you can hit me up for basketball. I know them both. On to MMA. So, man, the Lakers winning the championship, I think, is important. Um, And watching, we were actually going to talk about this last, but glad we'll talk about it now. Watching Watching the last game, it was, I was probably most happy for, Rajon Rondo. I don't 110% know why. I feel like he 
has been through some shit since those days with the uh, Celtics. And a lot of the Celtics kind of falling apart was blamed on him when in reality it wasn't his, his fault. And he has that, he has that, what's the word I'm looking for? That's that bad rap of having like a major chip on his shoulder, which I don't, I don't find any problem with uh, being an athlete at that level. You should have a chip on your, your, your shoulder, but what I love the most about seeing them win was seeing him win a uh, chip at, as well. Another one, I think it's his second um, in his, his career. And I think he, he deserves a lot of credit for the way that, that they played in game six when they, when they put it away, because he, uh, he's one of those leaders that, teams would get that they need, especially from the point guard position. So I was happy to see him get his shine. He had a little bit of a Jimmy Butler thing. You know, Jimmy Butler was told he was a problem. It was that he was on teams where guys weren't willing to push as hard or sacrifice as much to get the results. Ray John Rondo got a bad reputation when he was with the Mavericks and a couple other stops he had. And I'm not saying he didn't have an attitude problem to a degree, but once you put him in on a team with veterans and a team with a star who was going to cover every single base – to make sure his team was prepared and to execute, all of a sudden you didn't hear any of that. And I think it's the same issue that had Jimmy Butler happened with Rajon Rondo. He was around a team with young guys or with stars who weren't really assertive in, in what they're trying to do or how they're trying to win, and, and he just was disgusted by it. So he became more of a problem. Once you got him in a place where people knew how to respond to veteran leadership and people valued what he brought to the table, all of a sudden all the disgruntled stuff, the uneven performances, the lack of focus, all that disappeared. So it's a great example of how your environment can determine what you bring to the table or what you can do under the bright lights. In the right environment, you can be great. In another environment, you, 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 your greatness is overshadowed by any personal or professional flaws you have. So it's a good lesson, life lesson for everybody. Something I was talking about a lot on uh, Twitter last week during the uh, during the playoffs, during the finals, and I hope I got to tag Phil, Phil Lindsay. Um, I can't remember his Twitter handle. Let me look real quick because he's someone that everybody should follow. He is at Phil, Phil DL616. Phil Lindsay, my dude, um, very smart guy, big on MMA and um, professional wrestling, more so professional wrestling. But we, he is in, in, insistent upon the idea that Jimmy Butler is a star now. I will say this, Jimmy Butler is a great player, fantastic player, putting up numbers all day, every day. But that does not make you a star in the NBA because that being a star in the NBA means that people are paying hundreds of dollars to see you play every single game. People are tuning in every single game. People are buying your jerseys and buying them in bulk. Like you have multiple shoes after you, you have... You have commercial spots. You are on the covers of, of video games left and right. I do not think Jimmy Butler is at that level to call him a star. What do you think about that, Sean? I think, in a sense, he's not because he hasn't come. He doesn't come across quite that way in the maybe the professional or commercial way. But I think you could kind of, to a certain degree, he, he's 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 going to be remembered kind of as Allen Iverson. The biggest thing about Iverson was he wanted it so bad. He pushed a subpar team or pushed a team full of people who weren't considered the best in the world to the finals. Jimmy Butler essentially did that. Even though they won, all people were talking about is Jimmy Butler's two game, two performances in the series where he had 40 points and he dueled with LeBron, and the other one where he, he basically dominated every category and beat LeBron across the board. 
to win two two uh, games in that series. I don't know that he ever becomes like that name brand popular star, but I feel that the tables have turned as far as how people perceive him. And instead of just being a guy who's like he, he because of the guys he beat on the way to the title and the way he performed in the title t- championship matches, I think he really has crossed over to maybe the lower level of superstar. Because before people just knew Jimmy Butler is a troublemaker, but now people talk about what a dog he is, what a competitor, how we never. When he never stopped fighting. He went down swinging. And that kind of stuff resonates with people. They're, people like superstars who are A, overachievers, B, super talented people, and D, excuse me, C, the people who are just grinders, who never give up, who just fight, 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 fight. In boxing, that's an Aturo Gatti. I'm not quite sure who would be in MMA, but it's like that kind of guy who just constantly takes the biggest challenge on and goes all out, leaves everything he has on the uh, table, like Brett Favre did in football. So, um, I think to a degree he's a superstar. I don't know that he ever becomes that LeBron level kind of star, but um, or maybe the popularity of Steph Curry. But I think to a degree he he could, with another year or two he he could probably get within their realm. The only thing is I would figure that he's on the downside of his career physically just because of the way he plays and the way he's been coached previously, where he's been gone all out and push push push. I I think you can only do that so long in career before you start to slow down. And I feel like he's probably another year or two away before he starts seeing a kind of steeper decline in his, his conditioning, his athleticism. But for the next two years, I, I fully expect him to be someone who starts to get pushed more and who's established himself as a name in the, in the NBA. After this kind of performance, you'll see the Miami Heat on more national TV spots. You'll see them on more ABC TV spots because he drew that kind of attention and they had that kind of performance. See, when you say Allen Iverson, to me, when you say Allen Iverson, when you say Brett Favre, when you say or to Ogadi, I look at those guys as icons in their sport. Like the Allen Iverson influenced a whole movement in basketball, so much good and bad. Because remember, the um, the dress code is because of Allen Iverson. So both good and bad, he influenced a whole generation of basketball players. I don't think Butler is there. I don't think two to three years gets him there either. He maybe if he was younger doing all this stuff and he had a whole career to build upon that, yes. But to call him a star, I think is a little bit of a different conversation. Was this a this definitely shined more light on him per se? But I'm I'm not there yet with saying that he is a bona fide star in a star driven league like the NBA. That's fair enough. But this bubble, I mean, there was really for a period of time there was no other sports. All you you had to focus on was the NBA and its narratives. And um, for a guy on a team that was essentially considered completely outgunned, he put on two of the greatest all-time finals performances and a loss. And I think that carries some weight. I, I think he could be a lower-level star, or if nothing else, he, I don't consider him a superstar. He's more, more he, But he's more well-known than a lot of guys at this point, even before when he was known for a negative connotation. He, his name was still more familiar than a lot of other guys. Now it's just from the for a, a completely different reason. There's kids out there now who are like, I want to be like Jimmy Butler. I want to play like Jimmy Butler. Look who Jimmy Show Butler is. Look at the second Where? guy. Show me those I kids, so, kids we can, so, we, so we can trip them. I think that <laughs> I, a, guy who, a guy who just goes all out, never stops competing, and doesn't back down from any challenge, uh, that's, that's, that's the player a lot of kids say they are. That's a lot, the, kid, the player that a lot of kids say they want to be. That guy, whether he wins the title or not, always has the respect of, of real basketball players and real fans of basketball, whether they like his personality or not, what he did on the court and how he competed is going to carry him. 
Well, we will see. We're going to hold this conversation. We're going to come back to this at the end of the next um, season, whenever that starts. And let's have this conversation. But for now, we have to talk about a bunch of MMA action. And we're going to jump in talking with UFC Fight Night 179, where Corey Sanhagen picked up a big win over Marlon Morales. Now, on last week's show, I picked him to be the, uh, the, the, the favorite. I expected him to win this fight. I wasn't expecting it to be like this, though. We have a couple of different things to talk about here. First, we have um, Corey's big... He finished him with the he finished Marlon with the spinning kick that grazed off the top of Marlon's head, knocked him down, finished him with some strikes. It could have been considered a little bit quick, a little bit early. Okay, no problem. But he was handling Marlon and everything he had to offer in that fight there. How big of a win for Sanhagen was this bout on Saturday, um, Schwan? Like, do you think this is a this is a we just talked about stars. Is this a star-making performance for Corey Sanhagen coming off of his win on Saturday? Um, I, I think I think it'd be the begin the beginning of it. I don't know that his personality is a type that just draws people in. I mean, he seems interesting, seems smart, like good guy. But I don't know if he has that charisma or that uh that, that really kind of draws people in. That makes people just when he walks into the field room, he takes over. I don't know that he has that kind of personality, that kind of gravitas, whatever you want to call it, that kind of presence. But as far as like announcing himself as a truly elite fighter by, by beating what was considered another elite fighter, doing it in a dominant fashion, yeah, this this is this is a step forward. I mean, if you keep winning and you keep winning impressively, once again, you may never become a superstar, but just by the fact that you're winning and winning it in such dominant fashion, you will become a star of some sort because the, all the eyes and the focus of the organization are going to be on you and maybe two or three other people. Sorry, I was on mute there. So with this win here, what do you think is next for Sanhagen? What I liked is that he did not overshadow um, Aljamain Sterling. We're going to be talking about him in a second. But he made it clear that he was looking at either TJ Dillashaw or um, Cody Garbrandt, one of those names at 135. And what do you think will be next for him? What will be a good bout to put him in after this win? Well, I, I respect the fact that he, because if, if Morales would have won this fight, I would have said Aljamain pretty much can kiss his title shot away because that guy already knocked him out fairly dominantly, and then he would have had a win over he would have had a win over a guy that Aljamain beat as well. So that would have given him a half step ahead of him. They probably would have given the fight to Morales. Um, I think I think Dillashaw is a good fight. Dillashaw, just because Dillashaw's come back and Dillashaw's going to want to give him the title as soon as possible, he's not going to be able to get. Sterling, he's not going to be able to get um, Jan right away. I, I doubt that he's going to be able to get Jan right away, which means he's going to have to fight someone who's highly ranked and, and who's won more than he's lost to kind of get to kind of jump the line. And Marlon Rice wouldn't be available. Dominic Cruz, I can't imagine that he wants to fight him, especially coming off of a loss. The best option would be to fight Corey Sanhagen. And the fact that Sanhagen wants that fight is is probably the easiest fight to get made. It helps him because TJ's known. It helps. His, his Q rating. It helps him build his legitimacy if he can beat him because only one other person had beaten him before in that division in the, in the, re- the past few years, uh, that which would have been Cruz. And, um, excuse me, would have been Cruz because Cejudo beat him in another weight class. So you would, you would be, he would have a legitimate argument as to being the next line for that title fight. Um, the main thing, the main reason I think it's a good fight 
for him is because of his length. Uh, his length and the, and the ability he uses to manipulate distance, it re really allows him to go to work and put out a lot of volume, attack a lot of different levels, and, and create openings off of, his, off of the angles and off his initial attacks. And uh, TJ, as good as he is on the outside, when he moves around, he's kind of hard to hit. When TJ just basically, the minute he steps in to be offensive, he's there to be hit. He, he's been hit a lot even when he was fighting often. He's been hit a lot by average talent fighters. He's been hit a lot when Burrell was basically a zombie, a weight-drained zombie version of himself. He still was teeing off on TJ. TJ just was able to take it. When Cejudo fought him, he teed off him. When Cruz fought him, he teed off on him. So Sam Hagen, in fighting TJ Dillashaw, he'd have to match his volume. He'd have to be able to take some to get some. But he'd have opportunities to show what he can really do and put on a fight going to be favorable to what the fans would like to see. If it's going to be into wrestling, it'd be scrambles, quick takedowns, a lot of ground and pound, and on the feet, it'd be a lot of volume and a lot of a lot of versatility as far as the versatility of variety as far as what they're throwing and the defenses and the counters and the offense they're matching against one another. So that fight checks off the boxes. It's an important fight. It should be a fight to draw some attention, and it's a fight that would allow him to essentially submit himself as a next title challenger if he wins. And same thing goes for TJ. Checks off the same boxes. Important, exciting. It submits him as a next challenger if he gets by Sandhagen. So it's a win-win for the fans and the UFC. Are there any of these top-ranked bantamweights that you would pick Sandhagen as a favorite against right now? Uh, right now, pretty much, pretty much all of them. I mean, the, the biggest problem, the biggest problem for them is how rounded out his striking is and his, and his length. Because he's so long, guys, there's a certain range you're safe at. And nine times out of ten, for the majority of people's lives, they've, they've spot guys and spar guys who fit within that range. Against Dan Hagen, the range you figure you're safe at, he's still able to touch you from a, probably maybe a half a foot out, out from that range. With his kicks, the fact that he throws a variety Kicks to the stomach, kicks to the head, side kicks, spinning heel kicks, you know, question mark kicks. He, he has a wide variety of strikes, and he can attack from different ranges. And, this, and the problem isn't just that he can attack from different ranges. When you're trying to fire back, he's probably a, a full step to a step and a half, half away from you, which means you either have to feint and jab your way in, which most guys don't have the discipline or the skill set to do, or you have to lunge with your shots, throwing big shots loading up shots, trying to catch him on the counter, maybe hit him with a big shot, or swing one, two, to catch him, that's not going to work because you're still about a half foot out of his range, even with the one or two. You've got to one, two, three, four. You've got to commit to throwing a series of punches, or you've got to feint instead of a combination. Most guys can't do that. Cruz is hard to hit defensively, but when he moves, he takes himself out of position to counter you. And his solid defense opens him up for kicks to the legs and kicks to the body. That's going to be a huge problem for him. He could take Stan Hagen down, but San Hagen, at, at his size and weight, isn't going to be easy to control. It might submit him. He's already defeated Marlon Marais, and the whole thing with that is Marlon couldn't navigate the distance. He, he usually is an a, a aggressive counterpuncher and explodes across space to land big shots. That's how he knocked out Al Jermaine. Boom, one big knee. He throws these big looping shots, big hard kicks, and he, he attacks the space, hits you, stuns you, and then puts another shot together. He doesn't really throw in combination. He doesn't really set his shots up. A lot of his skills are attribute-based, i.e. I'm explosive, i.e. I'm fast, i.e. I hit very hard. He couldn't navigate, navigate the distance. He was reaching. He was lunging. He was running into all kinds of shots, 
from Sanhagen. And when Sanhagen was throwing, he was trying to take step back. He was trying to step back to avoid it. Sanhagen was too long, so he's chopping away his legs, catching him on the body. Even when he did the spin kick, he was trying to duck and get away from it. But Sanhagen's length, when he extended his leg to get the kick, clipped him on the forehead, dropped him, created the finish. Sterling is always going to be a problem for Sanhagen because all Sterling has to do is come forward. Come forward, get his hands on him, because Sanhagen is best when he's on his front foot. He's not good on his back foot because he backs up a straight line. When you don't pressure him, he's fine because he can use his length to control the distance and kind of pick you apart. But against a guy like Sterling, Sterling knows this. He's a good enough athlete to close the distance, and once he gets his hands on you, he can drag you to the ground. If not, hit a, hit a double, hit a single, get a backpack, drag you down and choke you out. Um, I don't really see a lot of good matchups for the guys who are right underneath him right now. I'm not saying that he beat them all, like, it's 100%, but I'd favor him over anybody else right now, at least 70 75% to 25%. Peter Young would be a good fight for him. Uh, Cody Garbrandt would be a good fight for him. But um, once again, his length and the variety of shots he throws are very problematic for anybody he's facing in the division, especially someone who is not dedicated enough to work their way into his into a distance where they can do damage. A lot of these guys are just big one-two punch guys, big kick, big punch, big knee kind of guys. There, there's not enough structure within them to get to the spots to expose them in. I think Peter Jan has that. Cody Garbrandt has it occasionally. And, and um, that's about it. I mean, he'd, he'd be in good fights with everybody, but I wouldn't favor anybody over him at this stage. Let's talk about Marlon really quickly. Uh, he took another L, and there was a time where Marlon was handling Henry Cejudo pretty clearly before running out of gas. Are we seeing his top end? Like, are we ever going to be in a world where Marlon Morales wins a UFC title? He's got enough athleticism. He hits hard enough. He's dynamic enough where he's going. But the thing, the thing I've said, and I've said this before we got here. I said this before he fought Cejudo. He's not able to fight at pace. He sets a, he, he, he fights in spots for one, and it's kind of he ramps it up and he lowers it down. He ramps it up and he lowers it down. He doesn't ha- have any ability to maintain a sp- to maintain a pace, and some of that is because of the technical deficiency in his game. You saw a fight against Sanhagen. He didn't jab his way in. He wasn't fading his way in. He would just throw these big kicks of the leg, big kicks of the body. But even with his kicks of the body, he was reaching. He was leaning. With his punches, he's reaching. He's leaning because he doesn't know. He, he's no or he's not disciplined enough to work himself into distance to make, make the most of his power and his athleticism. And when you're reaching a swing like that against a guy with some poise and some patience, you're letting him know your timing. You're letting him know your reach. You're setting yourself up for counters. You're setting, up your, you're setting yourself up for counters. You're setting yourself up to get caught when you're exiting out of range. When you explode in and then you try to back out, you're, you're setting yourself up for that. I think he's athletically got the talent to beat anybody, but you have to be, you have to be a certain kind of fighter for him to truly ex- exploit what you're doing again you know against the lower level guys he's so athletic he can get back up he can defend take down he can land big shots put them on their heels or back them up and win win three to five rounds on them but against guys of comparable athleticism and guys who've got a more disciplined and more structured game he's going to constantly struggle even when he was beating henry cejudo the whole point of the matter cejudo wasn't trying to dodge his strikes cejudo wasn't trying to necessarily out slick him cejudo was setting a pace on him Putting himself in line of fire, making Marais have to work because Marais doesn't have enough footwork to avoid positions when you press him. If you press him, the only way he can get more space is if he punches his way out, kicks and punches his way out to create space to back you off. 
if you're a really good boxer or you're a really good striker, what you can do is you pivot or you angle or you fake with your, you use your feet to feint, to create, to think I'm going left, and then you go right to pivot out, circle out, excuse me, or you fake, fake right and you hit a hard angle and you exit out on the left. He doesn't know how to do that. He doesn't know how to do it under pressure. So if you pressure him and you start firing shots, all he knows how to do is fire back. And he doesn't have the cardio to do that. And I've never been impressed with his chin. I never thought that he was a guy who could take as much punishment as he dished out. And that's becoming more, more and more true with every fight you see. So um, I think he's got the talent to be a world champion. I don't know that he ever develops the skill set. It's pretty late in the game. He's had too much success doing what he's done for him to really turn the corner on that. And the same mistakes he's made against Sanhagen, he's made in a bunch of fights. It's just Sanhagen had the length, the poise, and the versatility to exploit it. In the case of Cejudo, Cejudo just had the durability and the physicality to exploit it. And had he not landed that big knee against Sterling, if that knee would have missed and he would, Sterling would have taken down, I, I fully have 100% faith Sterling would have ground him out and eventually submitted him. Morais is very good in certain spots. In other spots, he's very ordinary, and he believes in his athleticism to, allow, to, get, to get him out of trouble. And at this level, around other elite fighters, other elite athletes, that athleticism is not going to be enough. It, it's just not going to be. So do you think a, that change in, in camps has been a benefit to him? You know, he used to be a part of the Mark Henry Ricardo uh, Almeida camp in uh, Jersey. Now he's down in ATT where Edson Barbosa also left. So is that a big benefit for him? Or do you think we still have to, we still have more, we still need more, more evidence to see if this is something that's going to help him grow his career? Well, when you move a camp, you, it, takes, it just takes time. Usually the first fight, they might install a couple things. It usually takes a fight or two for them to really start adjusting what you're doing. And that's only if you're open-minded and you have an, a high enough IQ and enough versatility as a fighter for you to kind of mix those things in and make those adjustments as they come. Being that it's so late in the game, I don't know how quickly or how really willingly he's able to take changes on. And it's not even that he, he, he doesn't want to take them on. The fact of the matter is a lot of guys make adjustments in how they fight, and they're fine until you put them under constant duress. Once you put them under constant duress, they start going back to the same guy they used to be. It's like I tell people when I'm talking to fighters, don't attack the fighter's technique don't attack his strategy, attack his character. If he's somebody who likes to go to war, all you have to do is crack him with a good enough shot, and he's going to go to war. He's going to bite down, and he's going to try and, he's going to try and fight back. If he's a finisher, all you got to do is frustrate him enough. Eventually, he's going to go for that finish. He wants to finish. He's a finisher. That's what his thing is. If he's a guy who likes to, instead of beating guys, he likes to break you, like Tony Ferguson, you know Tony Ferguson is going to serve himself up to be countered because he wants to break your will. So all you have to do is fight the character. Marlon Moraes' character, uh, under his character, he's a guy who fights and fought. Even in this fight, I don't know the fight you've seen where he fought at a high, high, consistent pace. There is no fight he's done that. He fights and fought. And in those spots when he's not fighting, being offensive, defensively, he doesn't do anything. He, he depends on his offense to scare you off. He's been doing that for, what, five, six, seven, eight, ten years, whatever. He's been a world champion. He's made a lot of money doing it. Even if he logically knows what he needs to adjust to, it's very hard to when you've had so much success doing what you've always done. So I'm not saying it can't change, but it, it takes some time to. And the worst thing about it is he gets paid so, so much money and he's such a big name as far as a get, as far as, as a free agent that you see got, they're not going to let him 
fight lesser guys to master his new skill set and to develop it. They're going to force him to fight top main guys. So he might fight another top main guy, get submitted to get stopped. Fight another top main guy, get submitted to stop. Fight another top guy, get submitted to stop. And then by the time he's really started to adjust and make those technical and strategical changes, he's on. He he can't afford to lose a fight, or he's taking so much punishment. He 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 has no margin for error. Otherwise, he makes one mistake, two mistakes, and it's over. That's that's the thing about when you get paid so much money. That's the thing when you're such a big signing. They don't give you any soft touches. They keep face putting you against guys who you can't afford to make mistakes in, and guys who can put enough pressure on you that they're going to force you into old habits. So I would really like to see him take a step back, fight a lesser opponent, and work his way back into contention. I don't think that he believes he should have to. I don't think he wants to. I think he wants to stay fighting the elite guys, which means he's going to be in 50-50 propositions from here on out. So my last question in reference to this before we move on. Aljamain Sterling, there's no way he gets overlooked for the title shot now, right? I mean, in theory, the UFC's done some crazy stuff. I mean, I don't want, I don't want to say there's, I don't want to say for sure there's no way because uh, there's been plenty of times there should have been no way somebody should have been overlooked for a shot and they were. So um, I, I'm just, I'm just gonna say logically there's no way. But the UFC does not always go by logic, and everybody who's a fan of the UFC knows that. Well, yeah, you're very right about that. They can put, they can fucking give um, Dominic Cruz a win or something like that. That wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Wouldn't be surprised at any point in time. Um, let's talk about another big fight that occurred. Another important win, I should say. Edson Barbosa picked up a his a win at 145 over. I can't remember the guy's name. I can't really probably even pronounce it, even if I could. However. He picked up a much-needed win at 145 pounds, and he is talking in a way as if he is determined to win a belt at this weight class. Are we look? Are we living in a world right now where we can ex- ever expect to see him become a champion at 145, or is his time come and gone? Uh, Edson is someone who, if you look at his record and who he's fought. He's fought a murderer's row. I mean, there's no one that can deny who this guy has stepped in has stepped in the cage with at any point in time during his UFC run from day one. So, but you have to wonder how much damage he's taken over time. And you kind of see that every time he steps into the cage. Cutting down to 145 at this point in his career can't have the best benefit, uh, best impact to his body. So, and what you saw with Edson Barbosa on Saturday, do you think he is someone that will ever even fight for a 145-pound belt? I'm assuming when he came down, he figured his power would be the difference, and maybe these guys in a lower weight class wouldn't be able to handle his power um, because he's able to knock out lightweight, and some of these guys would get to light to, to welterweight. So maybe his explosiveness and his power would be a difference maker. But even though he, he, I guess he looks good in this fight. You have to ask yourself: this this guy he's fighting wasn't wasn't among the elite in the in the division, if I'm correct. The last guy he fought wasn't among the elite in the division, if I was also correct. He did not, even if he, you know, he looks he he looks dominant in this, but did he look really spectacular? I mean, he didn't put the guy away. The guy basically served himself up. That's Barbosa by fighting the wrong fight, staying at range, not really pressuring, not really putting shots together, not getting his hands on him, trying to wear him down or chop him down to the body, not not getting into boxing zone and and and, and outboxing him or outworking him. 
he, he kind of gave Barboza the fight he wanted. And usually when Barboza gets the fight he wants, he knocks guys out. You know, he spectacularly knocks them out. He didn't do, do that. He won all the rounds. He was in control. But he didn't put this guy away. And I know it's hard to put a guy away when he doesn't want to be put away and when he's trying to survive. But that's the things that guys say once they lose their ability to put guys away like they used to. And, you know, the guy he lost to, Dan Ige, Dan Ige's not a bad fighter. But Ige's not an elite fighter in the division. I don't know that he's top 10 or maybe loose top 15. So now Edson Barbosa is going full round fights with guys who aren't even in the top 15 of the weight class. I mean, maybe they're just better than I think. But given Edson Barbosa's pedigree, his athleticism, and his reputation, you would expect him to be much more dominant, much more dominant, more, much more consistent and damaging versus these caliber of opponents. You know, these guys aren't Paul Felder. These guys aren't Benil Dariush as far as their quality of wins and their records and their quality of skill and, and their experience level. I mean, these guys aren't, I mean, these guys aren't half as good as some of the guys he's knocked out, yet he's, he, he's struggling at spots with them. So I, I don't know that I see him getting to a, a title fight. I don't know that who, which elite featherweight I, I favor him over. I feel like, like, I feel like everybody has, an, has enough strength to, to attack his weaknesses and to basically um, get wins over him. You know, I, I, I don't know who I'd favor him over. Maybe Yara Rodriguez. I guess I'd favor him over them. Maybe somebody like that. I mean, Brian Ortega, maybe just because he hasn't fought very often. But I mean, as far as I, I just don't know, I, I haven't seen anything from me that says that Edson Barboza is a elite featherweight. I haven't seen it yet. And I think there's way too many guys who can exploit his his boxing and his boxing defense for him for me to say that he could be dominating. He's going to dominate the division or he's going to fight for a title. I personally don't see it. I'm not saying it's not possible. I, I just don't see it. Not giving off his last two performances, I don't see it at all. So I don't want to I don't want to hang on Edson too long. Um, I kind of agree with you. I think when he gets up there, he might become ranked in the top five. I think that's kind of like the, his ceiling at this point in time in his career. And at 145 pounds, he may may hit that ceiling. But the next thing I wanted to talk about is I guess the knockout that's being talked about around the world. Uh, Joaquin Buckley uh, got one of the biggest knockouts we've seen in combat sports. And it's being held as the greatest knockout in UFC history. And I, I am having a hard time debating that right now. I have some others that are over that. In my opinion, I think the Yair Rodriguez, Chan Sanjok one was huge. Um, Holly Holm knocking out Raquel Penny, not Raquel Penny, excuse me. Holly Holm knocking out Ronda Rousey was huge as well. Um, the Ricardo Arona and getting slammed on his head by... Um, Quentin Rampage Jackson is another one that stands out to me. But where for you does this fight rank on the all-time li- or this this knockout? What does this knockout rank on the all-time list for you, Sean? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't. I probably don't have as high as other people, just because part of the knockout would have to be, be who your the two fighters involved, two the two fighters involved, who's doing it, who's being knocked out by it the level of technique, and the stakes of the fight. And as far as UFC caliber fights, this isn't like some low-level bum fight or anything, but these guys aren't two of the best guys. These guys aren't known for their durability or their 
or their technique offensive or defensive wise. And this isn't, you know, this isn't some legendary win streak or somebody who's fighting for a title or potential title shot in this move. So it kind of takes away from me. I think creative wise or or things we haven't seen, yeah, it's pretty unique because, you know, that like many people said on Twitter, this is the kind of technique that if somebody put this in a movie, you'd be like, there's, in fact, we've seen, I've seen it in a movie before. And the people, all the martial artists I know, nobody would ever stand there long enough to get kicked in the face by that kid. And yet we saw it in the cage between two highly trained professionals. One, he caught the kick and then he stood right there. The guy spun and kicked him in the face again. So from that instance, the fact that the likelihood we'll see that repeated, like that technique repeated, it puts it up there. It will put it up there in that regard. But as far as who was involved, what was at stake, and the um, quality opposition, it's not really all that high. The the punt, the knockout of McGregor over Aldo, probably is going to be my one of my top two, just because of what that fight meant. A guy who's been legendarily durable and who had been who hadn't lost a fight since he lost his first fight, like what eight ten years ago. So those those carry more weight and more merit because of the technique level, the level of opposition, and what was at stake. In this case, it's a creative technique, but it wasn't it wasn't done super super technically and it wasn't between two high level fighters and there was really nothing on the on the table for it. You know, there I mean it wasn't like for a world title, it wasn't for the win streak, it wasn't to get to a world title, it was just a fight in the division. So uh, the creativity of it, yeah, is probably top one or two. But as far as the importance and the quality of opposition, I don't know that it's in the top ten for me. I and What's something that's been interesting to me is this looking at how people are talking about this fight. Uh, Buckley got the $50,000 bonus. Obviously, should have, shouldn't have been any debate about that. But people are talking about whether or not this, that was enough payment for the boost and popularity that UFC received and the exposures and the eyeballs that was put on the product from that moment. I can agree and say that I don't think it was, especially not when you look at the 10.5 million views this that knockout had before the night was even over. That video clip had more than 10 million views before the night was even over. So with a number yeah. like that, and you look at the fact that that can be overlaid with advertising and there's money to be made there, what do you think about that bonus? Should he have gotten more? Should they have given him all $200,000? How can we begin to monetize he, these types of highlights in a different way? He, he definitely should have gotten more. And the argument I used against his knockout being in the top two or three or even top five or ten, it works in his favor in this argument because one, this was a fair, as far as the UFC goes, this was a fairly low-level fight between two guys with no name and nothing at stake except one guy wins, one guy loses. No world title, no no world title shot, no huge win streak, no super popular fighter, nothing. These are two guys, and I say this respectfully because I know they are people, but two nobodies who generated what? Ten, did you say ten and a half million views? Ten and a half million views. So before the night that, was over, I don't even of, know where it's at now. That kind of those for those reasons, he should have gotten paid more. Ronda Rousey, a Conor McGregor, they're world worldwide stars. Even guys who aren't maybe super big stars, but they're UFC stars, a, a Cowboy Cerrone, a Cyborg, or Cyborg, which is Amanda Nunes. They're people who are established 
established. There are people who've known. There are people who are high stakes. So them getting big attention is partly because of what they've done in the UFC and partly because of the position they're in and partly because of their own fan base, their own popularity. These guys didn't have fan bases. These guys didn't have any popularity. So to have two guys who essentially didn't even register on the uh, on the needle as far as the, the ratings for the infamous needle movers that Dana talks about, for them to generate that and not you know, – only get paid fifty thousand. That's a that's a great investment. That's a great investment for the UFC. I mean, imagine if you paid somebody fifty thousand fifty thousand dollars to help market our show, and the next week we had a million and a half views. Uh, we underpaid that guy. We 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 got over on him because that's worth more than fifty thousand. And the and this is the kind of thing that helps the UFC establish itself as a brand because these two guys aren't names. They're not really big names, and there's a good chance that neither one of them is going to go on long winning streaks or be a potential title challenger. So the real benefit only goes to the UFC. Because people say, in the UFC, where you see the craziest knockouts in mixed martial arts, not only do you see the best fighters, you see the craziest submissions and the craziest knockouts. It's just another selling point for the UFC. This could actually backfire on the guy who did it because he might become such a big star, he might get so much attention, the UFC might move him up against a level of opposition he's not ready for which could result in a loss, two losses, and have him out of the U, out of the UFC in the next year and a half when they should move him appropriately and see if they can cultivate this into better opportunities and better money for him. The UFC is going to get paid out either way, whether he sinks or swims. He's done them a huge favor. $50,000 does not cover the, 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 the attention and the, uh, and, the kind of, and the kind of support this is going to get the UFC in the next few live events, and pay-per-views. This kind of stuff carries over. Because if we see this kind of stuff from two no-names, what are we going to see from Khabib and Gaethje? We can see anything. You know, it just sets the table for that. So he should have got paid a lot more. He's not going to pay him a lot more unless they pay him under the table, which is possible. A lot of guys get paid really good under the table. But whatever they're paying him, it ain't enough. Not for 10, not 10 and a half million views for a guy who nobody knew as of last week prior to that fight. So uh, one thing, Schwan, you're kind of rubbing up against your mic. And I can hear some background static there. So I really appreciate your analysis on that. We're going to move on to uh, UFC Fight Night 180, which is this weekend with a pretty big oh, main wait. event. Rafael, Rafael, Rafael. Go, go just ahead. one thing, real quick. Um, the Tibura Rothwell fight. I'm a big Ben Rothwell fan. I've actually talked to him before, like online email, was emailing back and forth with him for a while when he was in the the uh, the Fight League IFL. Um, this was to me. This was a really bad loss for him. Tybura has basically been a journeyman who guys kind of rehab themselves against. You know, he's a tough guy because he throws volume. He throws a lot of variety. He can take a lot, a lot of punishment. He gives you a chance to put on the fight that gets the fans' attention and gives you a chance to sh- show what you can do offensively and show your grit and your determination. But against the better guys, he's, he's always found a way to lose. Ben Rothwell used to be one of the, and he still might be, but he, he used to be one of the elite heavyweights. And in this fight, he didn't look elite. He looked like he was in better shape. He threw, threw a lot of volume. But the fact of the matter is, the first time in a long time, I actually saw Ben Rothwell get out, outworked and outfought. That guy outfought him. And Ben Rothwell's thing is being big, physical, with just enough IQ and technique that he outfights guys, he breaks down guys, he, he imposes himself. And in this fight, Tibura imposed himself on Rothwell in a competitive, but ultimately ended up being fairly one-sided fight towards the end. Um, it's just... To me, it's a bad loss given Roswell being 38 and having been on a two-fight losing streak 
before he had this two fight winning streak, or excuse me, a three or four fight losing streak before he he beat um, a couple guys to get on a two fight winning streak. I don't know that he's gonna have a. I mean, as a heavyweight, he'll always have a spot somewhere, but his time as being a difference maker, the heavyweight might be done. And I, I still don't think Tybura's a great heavyweight. I think this loss tells me more about Rothwell than tells me about, about Tybura. But I felt that Rothwell had at least one more run in him, and it's starting to look like he does not have one more run as an elite heavyweight in the UFC. That's some good breakdown there. So I wasn't going to go into that heavyweight fight, but I appreciate you taking the time to look into it. Um, some good thoughts there, as, as always. Let's talk about this weekend's main event, where I feel like there's a title shot on the line for whoever comes out on top. We have Brian Ortega, Chan Sung Jung, two of the top-ranked 145-pounders. Um, you have a guy coming off of a fight with Ortega, um, excuse me, a guy coming out of a fight who has competed against Max Holloway in the past. And you got Chan Sung Jung, who for some is kind of coming out of, out of nowhere. But you forget who this guy's beaten throughout his uh, career. Talk about this fight here, Shawan. How do you see this fight playing out, and who comes out on top? Uh, it's I'm I'm a big fan of both guys. My biggest concern is that Brian Ortega has not fought very often at all. Like it's been almost two years, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, it's been uh, almost two years since that fight. Yeah, he, he he's been out, and the last fight he had was when he fought Max Holloway, and he took a a tremendous beating. And while I really respect the fact that he took time out to recover, I really feel like he maybe overdid it as far as his time off. I, I don't think, I always tell guys you should take six to eight months off to recover when you've taken a one-sided fight or you've taken a lot of abuse because your mind needs to recover and you clearly need to address some holes in your game. But taking this time, this amount of time off and then coming in and against an elite guy who's been fighting fairly often, it seems like it's a recipe for disaster. The only thing that I can hope is that Brian Ortega has actually been working to fill out the gaps in his fighting style. Because as good a grappler as he is, he's never shown great takedowns. He's never shown ability to counter takedowns. He's been more of an opportunistic guy who's, who's so good at feeling submissions and operating in transition that he can snatch submission from anywhere. You take him down, he guillotines you, you... Hit you know, both hit the ground, he scrambles, he finds an armbar, something of that nature. He's able to just find finishes out of anywhere, but he's never been able to control where the fight takes place or how the fight gets to the ground. And against a guy like TKZ, I don't know that that's I don't know that that's manageable if he hasn't addressed that. I'm gonna hope that in the past two years he's short of his striking, he has some structure to it where he can set up his shots, he has counters, he, he has a way to work inside a range, he has a way to put shots together. And he has a way of setting up takedowns so that he can get clean entries and get takedowns instead of being forced to wait until a guy knocks him down or he knocks a guy down or a guy takes him down. Because when you do that, you secede control of the fight to the guy. You might be dangerous everywhere, but that, that guy determines where the fight's going, which hinders, hinders how offensively damaging you can be. And that, that's my concern, that this, during these two years where he hasn't been preparing for a fight, most MMA fighters don't have the poise or discipline to really attack their weaknesses like they should. And I have, I have no idea what his training's been like. I have no idea what the point of focus has been like. I have no idea what we're going to see from him. All I know is the guy I've seen prior to this fight had a, had a chance of winning, but most likely was going to be out-hustled and out-worked to decision loss. And if he hasn't addressed those, addressed those holes um, at this point, it, it might be a stoppage loss. Um, Korean Zombies 
in my opinion, a better all-round MMA fighter. The only question is he takes a lot of risks. And against somebody like Brian Ortega, every risk you take could be the end of the fight for you. But if you can fight a disciplined, controlled fight, you'll just beat him up. You'll just beat him up. You'll just outwork him. You'll just technically outclass him because he's very limited as far as his actual all-round technique. He's very good at finishing. He's very good at fighting in spots and turning a fight, but he's not very good at fighting a full three to five rounds offensively, defensively, and using counters. That's on the feet or on the ground. Watch his fights. It's all one, a couple big moments of offense. He's losing fights until he finds a way to win them. And when he fought Max Holloway, he just didn't have a way to win. And he ended up losing that. So um, I want to say the Korean Zombie is the favorite, just because I have no idea what we're going to see from Brian Ortega. He could improve a lot. He might be the same guy. Um, if he's the same guy, he's dangerous to win it, but he's most likely going to be outclassed. If he's a better guy, even then, it's still a tough fight because he hasn't been in live. He hasn't been in live in almost a, almost two years, if I recall correctly. That's a long time not to be preparing for a fight. That's a long time to not be in a fight. You can be in shape, but there's things like timing. There's things like contact. There's things like um, the pace of a fight and the physicality that you can't emulate in training. And he hasn't had any taste of that in years. So that, that's a big concern for me. Let's talk about Korean Zombie really quickly. What I find really interesting about him is that people are talking as if he came out of nowhere. Zombie has been putting on great performances for a very long time. I remember when he defeated Dustin Poirier and people were surprised that that happened. Are we looking at someone that can become a champion in the UFC? And then I have another question on top of that. Talk about the value of taking those two years off that he served, went to go serve in the mandatory um, military service, which is a part of the um, Korean uh, law. How did that prolong his career and help him get to this comeback at a time where other guys are slowing down and he is actually surging at a time where the division is allowing him to maybe put himself in a position to be a title challenger when in the past he may not have been that guy? Well, the, the one thing that I would say is taking the two years off, he was always involved in these, you know, these fights that were knockout of the night, submission of the night, you know, fight of the night type fights, the kind of fights that you have a lot of give and take, a lot of push and pull in the fight. And that takes a toll on you. A lot of guys, when they're actively fighting, they won't take six months off. They won't take eight months off. They won't take a year off to recover. And if they do take a year off, they're not – they're either just working or they're just at home or whatever. That's why when guys come back, they have to go through a camp to be in shape. He was in the military, so he was having to use his mind, stay sharp, and he was having to be physically active. So he didn't have a chance to get out of shape. Now, he, maybe he wasn't in fight shape, but he was having to continuously be physically active and mentally sharp and mentally, mentally aware. I think that those two years probably allowed him to extend his career because it was two years where he had a chance to look at what he's doing and maybe make some adjustments as far as points of emphasis, things he needs to do, things he wants to do. Maybe it re reignited his love for the sport. But most of all, it just gave him a chance for his body and his mind to recover from all the, from all the punishment and abuse he had taken over, the, over his brief time in the UFC. I mean, he would just come off an injury when he fought Jose Aldo. So having, having that time off just allowed him to really let his body have time to heal and recover. And if he was still training during that time, which I'm sure he was, he was able to address holes in his game and start 
filling these holes instead of just relying on his toughness and his athleticism to get get him through, which was a hallmark of his fighting style. When he came back, you saw a little bit more poise. You saw a little bit more discipline. You saw a little bit more structure and setups in his offense. You saw a little bit more offensive efficiency in his offense. It wasn't so wild and so dependent on pace and, and physicality. It was more it was, it was more layered. It was more patient. It was more technical, meaning that he didn't take as much punishment coming. He didn't take as much punishment on the back end when he was trying to be offensive. So I think it really helped him out. It really helped him out a lot. And while I wouldn't recommend guys taking two years off because it's it's really risky, you know, to get to be out of the loop that long, and especially if you're not in a situation where you have enough money or you're not being funded where you can train. Because training costs money. Some of these guys, when they're not fighting, they can't afford to train. Luckily, he was doing something that was mandated, but he was paid for it as well. So he wasn't in a position where he didn't have money or he wasn't forced to stay in shape or he wasn't forced to stay mentally sharp. Those were all parts of his routine. He stayed in a routine that allowed him to come back and not have to take six months six months to get in shape or three months to get in shape. He was already in shape and ready to go when he got done with his military, uh, his military requirement. So I, I think it was a huge benefit for him. So, well, I mean, that's not a bad breakdown there. I'm interested in seeing like how that benefit, how long it uh, has to, how long it continues to help his career. A lot, I feel and, like a lot of people are. Go ahead. Well, like, and and I was gonna say it is disrespectful to people that he just came out of nowhere. I know he took a two year break, but you look, he beat Frank Yeager, he beat Renato Moicano, he. He was basically within a second and a half of beating Yara Rodriguez. He would have won a decision. And he beat Dennis Bermudez. All these guys are ranked, ranked featherweight. They're top 10, top 7 featherweight. He, he technically speaking, you, you could say he's basically 4-0. Basically for a what? It's a five-minute round. For, so for like 24 minutes, 24 minutes and 58 and a half seconds, he was 4-0. He basically lost a half second of that fight, and that's what cost him. But he's been fighting all elite talents, all elite fighters. For people to act like he just is getting a shot out of the blue, let you know that, A, Brian Ortega has a higher Q rating. He's more known among the fans. He's more popular. And um, B, that people don't really pay attention as much as to the actual sport as they do the name. Because if you're paying attention to sport, he's actually doing Brian Ortega a favor. Because if Brian Ortega beats him, he has an argument to say, I'm next in line for a title fight. This this is a high risk. It's a it's basically a high risk, low reward fight for him. He beats Brian Ortega. Ortega can say I've been off for two years. Yada yada yada. We all know the flaws in Ortega's game and his setups and his grappling and his striking. If he loses to him, all that well, all that momentum he built up and basically being on the precipice of a, of a title fight goes away, and he's going to go back. He's going to have to go to the back of the line and start all over again. And if he doesn't want to go to the back line, he's going to have to face another elite tough guy to get in position and still have to fight another fight or two for a title fight. This is purely for Brian Ortega's benefit. The UFC clearly wants him to be in the mix because they're giving him a guy who's not only on a streak, who's had some very impressive wins in the last couple of years, they're also giving a guy who is known to get greedy, known to take risks. And it gets an opportunistic striker and an opportunistic grappler who's very durable and who can hang in there until his moment comes, this is the worst kind of fight for the Korean zombie because it's the guy who can hang in there long enough to find his moment. And usually when he finds his moment, he finds victory. So they're giving Brian Ortega a very a dangerous opponent, but an opponent 
that fits to his character and fits to his skill set. So he's going to have opportunities to win this fight. And if he wins this fight, he very well might be a title challenger. If worst, worst case scenario, he'll be one fight off for being a title challenger. Best case scenario, they'll just put him in because they were going to want, want a guy who's popular who can help Volkanovski sell and make money. And Brian Ortega is probably still one of the most popular guys in the division outside of Max Holloway. Yeah, I'm really interested in seeing how this fight plays out and what's next for Chan Sun Jung. If he does pick up, pick up a win, I will, he's one of those guys that you want to see win a title simply because he's been around for so long and he's been doing this for so long. And he's, for lack of a better term, one of the good guys, it seems like. Yeah. So like I, 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 will, I would love to see him get this win and um, basically and, and get some benefit from that, maybe get a title shot, even get, get a title at some point in time. I would love to see that happen. Yeah, I, I just, I, the main thing is I like the guy. He's, he seems all class. He's really improved. You saw, you've seen the improvements. You've seen the control. You've seen the discipline. You've seen the increased jab, setting up the strikes, leading guys into strikes, um, a more deliberate grappling game more deliberate counter-punching game. He, he's really improved, but even so, even in these fights, he's still taking a fair amount of punishment. Not as much as he used to, but still a fair amount. And while I want to see him get a title fight, I want to see him get his chance. At the same instance, I don't want him to hang around long enough where those one knockout turn into two, turn into three, turn into four, because he is a guy who likes to finish. He is a guy who likes to press the pace. He is a guy who likes to punish guys. And those kind of guys always find themselves in the line of fire of abuse. And as I've always said, as a fighter, speaking on the behalf of a, of a fan or a guy who's worked with fighters, you only have so many wars in you. You only have so many tough fights in you. And once you cross that line, every shot's a kill shot. Every shot you take is a kill shot. And I just don't want to see him get to that point because he's too good a fighter and too class an athlete to have to suffer that kind of indignity. So the other fight I wanted to talk about from this card is Jessica Andrade going up to 125 and fighting, fighting Caitlin Chukagian. I am picking Andrade in this fight, um, but what I wanted to talk about here is can Andrade get to the title? Is this a way to get to that uh, fight against Valentina Shevchenko? I think she can. I mean, to be honest, she dropped a band away. I didn't understand why she didn't move up to that weight faster. She's still probably one of the strongest people in the division, even though technically she's not a Hard hitter because she loads up on her shot get power. She's probably one of the harder hitters. She's probably one of the more durable. You there? You broke Hello? up a little bit, Sean. Yeah, you broke up a little bit. Okay, sorry. Uh, like I said, she's still one of the bigger fighters. She's still one of the stronger fighters. One of the better athletes. One of the harder hitters. And she's she's experienced. She's fought all sorts of styles. She's elite level competition. She, she's more proven than than 90% of the girls in the division. I, I don't think there's a lot of girls who have the physicality alone to stop her. And somebody like Chukagan has the movement. She has a variety of strikes. But Chukagan's not very accurate. And defensively, Chukagan is not really hard to hit, especially if you go to the body. She's not hard to hit at all. Like a Holly Holm is not as durable or as physical. And I like even Chukagan. But this does not seem like it's a fight that's made to put her in the best position to win. I mean, her best option is to outposition her and just use volume on her. But I don't know that she can keep a pace, stay away from Andrade for three whole rounds. Because if she can't hurt her, if Andrade's chin is still there, Andrade is just going to chase her down and, and overwhelm her. And I, I don't see how Chukagan is going to stop that. 
I, I really think they're trying to fast track her to a title. I think they're trying to fast track her to a title. Chukagan was what? One of the last title challengers? Like the last challenge, she was title the challenger? Last, she was the last one, yeah, because Joanne Calder, I think, was supposed to get a, a shot. And then she was her, uh, Valentina got hurt. So she beats her. Whoever wins, Lauren Murphy, Cynthia Calvillo, Andrade fights them, and she beats them. She's pre- pretty much a lock for a title shot. And and to be honest, if we're really if we're really being honest about it, her style fits Valentina because she's all offense, she's all come forward. She didn't have enough layers to be technical and to be defensive, but also she's physically strong enough and she hits hard enough where Valentina just won't be able to have her way physically like she has with so many of these girls. It's not just so much that she's outskilling them, that every time she hits them, she hurts them. Every time she puts her hands on them, she's throwing them around left and right. She may outclass Jessica Andrade, but I can pretty much guarantee she is not going to be throwing Jessica Andrade around. She's not going to be physically dominating her like that. When's the last time you've seen anyone do that to Andrade? If at all. Um, I, I really haven't. The only thing I've seen close to it is when, when she fought Zhang uh, and she got knocked out. Because I mean, that she didn't physically dominate her, but just she, seeing her rock like that. And then when she fought Rose Namajunas, when Rose was just lighting her up left and right, you know, you see, you just saw her head getting swung back and forth. You saw her getting backed up. But even in that, you, you were, I'm more amazed by the fact that she took basically every shot from the hardest hitter in the weight division and still was able to come forward and, um, in one fight, she won it. In the other fight, um, Rose was just hanging on for dear life. I mean, she won. Rose won it, but uh, she would she couldn't have made it another round. Another round would have been the end of her. So, um, just that physical presence she brings, and that athleticism is going to be a huge factor in that weight class. I mean, who's going to bully her? Roxy Matafari, Antonina Shevchenko, Macy Barber. You know, who, who's going to be the person who's going to back her up? Who's the person who hits so hard they're going to back her up and dictate? How the fight goes are and- Andrea Lee, Cynthia Calvillo, Lauren Murphy, Jessica I. Is she, is she going to do this to Jessica Andrade? I don't think so. That's a very good point. I don't very think good so. Point. Yeah, she could definitely be fast-tracked to that title. Um, let's look at the rest of the card and see what else do you have in mind? Like, What else is like standing uh, out to you? Well, those are, those are the two big fights just because they're big, important fights. Um, it's interesting to see Thomas Almeida coming back. I'm very curious to see what he brings to the table because the biggest issue with Thomas Almeida has just been he's been so vulnerable as far as how much punishment he could take. Uh, he's always been offensively skilled. He's got athleticism. He's a physical-type fighter. He fights at a high pace, but he's never been able to take sustained punishment, and he's never developed a good enough an efficient enough striking game offensively or or a defensively enough sound style to where he could navigate his lack of durability. Because not only does he get hit fair, hurt, hurt fairly easily, he doesn't recover very quickly. And with a guy who's all offense, if you can't take punishment, when you're throwing volume and you're throwing variety, you're going to get hit. The most dangerous time for you to get hit isn't when you're covering up. It's when you're, you're throwing strikes. And he likes to assert himself, take control of fights, and and throw volume and throw variety and break you down and chop you down and beat you up and, and back you up. But in the UFC, that's, repeat, that's gotten him knocked out multiple occasions. You know, he got rocked and bullied by Jimmy Rivera. He got KO'd by Rob Font. He got KO'd by Cody Garbrandt. And prior to that, he was just walking through everybody. But once you got to fighting guys of a comparable athletic, athletic ability, where some of the mistakes he made, he made against other guys, 
may have had a few rough spots. UFC level talent, it got to finish. So I'm, I'm interested to see if he's rounded out his game. Maybe he's missing some takedowns, reactive takedowns, so that he can create openings, get to the ground, and pick his spot so that he's not serving himself up for, for counters or for offensive leads. Or has he really worked on developing his defensive game? Maybe he's worked on a jab. He's got a jab, a double jab. He knows how to change levels now. He knows how to switch it. Maybe he just worked on his defense, parrying, blocking, rolling with shots, using his feet to control and manipulate distance. I'm interested to see if he's gotten better or if he's just taking time off and he figures, okay, well, I'm ready to give it another shot. Because if he has not improved, he's going to end up in the exact same spot he, he ended up in the beginning. He's in a division full of durable, very well-conditioned, skilled guys. He's not. There's very few easy matchups in this division, even at the lower top 15 type. There's a lot of grinders. There are a lot of guys who are explosive, explosive athletes. There's a lot of guys who are dynamic strikers. He's not going to have the luxury of just beating up on guys who are a step or two behind him athletically. He's facing guys who are just as good an athlete as he is and who are probably two to three times more durable than he is. So I'm very curious to see what he brings to the table in this fight and if he's actually addressed his weaknesses or he's just a guy who took a couple years off and comes back to the same fighter. If he is, it, you'll, you, you'll, you'll see it very quickly. It, it won't cut it. It won't be good enough. And I've thought about... Um... I thought about Thomas Almeida as well because I was curious to see what he's going to look like when he comes back. I remember him being such a highly top prospect. And then I was looking around. I was like, what fight did he have? And he lost. And everybody's just Cody changed Garbrandt. their mind. Yeah, Cody, yeah, when it, Cody it, it, yeah, it was Cody. Everyone just changed their mind in a minute. As soon as that when Cody became legit because Cody hadn't looked great prior to that. When he beat Almeida, people were like, oh, my God, he's for real. He could really be a contender. That's part of the reason Cody got fast-tracked, because of the way he beat him. And, and, and since that, um, if, I, if I recall correctly, I don't know that Almeida, Almeida actually, I think he might have won one fight after Cody. Yeah, he, he, had beat, he had won three fights in the UFC, and then he fought Cody, lost. He fought, fought one other fight against Albert Mor- Morales, who was not a great fighter, not a highly ranked fighter. Then he lost to the next two elite fighters he fought. You know, I mean, it basically stated him as a guy who the first time he stepped up, he lost. So he took a step back, fought a lesser guy, won impressively, TKO, and then he st- took a step up, lost the decision, took another step up, lost by KO. And it, and it, it all started going wrong when he fought Cody Garbrandt. That was for the reach of the division. Cody won it. He went on to a title. Uh, Thomas Almeida lost it, and he was two and one, excuse me, one and two in his last in his last three fights. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested. Like, and I'm, I was going to bring him up as well, too. The fact that you brought him up kind of points him out to me, too. I was, I was interested in seeing what he looks like when he comes back. So we'll both be keeping an eye out on that. Anything else on, on this card that you are looking forward to seeing or no? Yeah, the, the last thing I look forward to see is um, Jillian uh, Robertson. Um, yeah, she's another good one, too. She, she's a good. She's she's got a really good grappling. She's got really good transitional wrestling, getting the fight to position and improving position. She she's been very good at that. But the thing about her is she hasn't been able to blend all aspects of mixed martial arts together. As far as like setting up strikes to get in position to get the takedown, or having good enough defense, where instead of getting backed up against the cage or taking a bunch of shots and then then, then trying a desperation takedown, she actually can slip under them get a reactive takedown or she can jab her way in jab high punch low punch high 
go for the go for the takedown. She hasn't balanced out her mixed martial arts skill set. She hasn't blended it together. She's either striking, 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 or she's grappling, grappling, grappling. She's shown no ability to blend it together. And against the better athletes in the in the in the division, she's kind of hit a roadblock. She seemed to have turned a corner against Courtney Casey, but Courtney Casey is historically the lowest IQ fighter in the history of mixed martial arts. I say that is a fan of her. She's tough. She's accomplished, but she just fights so dumb in the cage. She just fights so terribly, terribly dumb in the cage. And um, and a win over her means something. But when you think about how many mistakes Courtney Casey makes in every every single fight she takes, and the same mistakes she's made since her first fight in the UFC, it takes away from that win. So now against another opponent who, once again, is not the greatest opponent, I need to see some growth from her. I need to see some steps forward as far as blending the striking, the wrestling, and the grappling, and not being, not getting stuck at certain ranges and not getting stuck in certain spots. If she could develop more of a competent striking game, like a Roxy Martafari, who she's a better athlete than, I believe a better wrestler than, she could really go on a run of the division. But as long as she gets stuck in grappling, stuck in wrestling, stuck in striking, she's never going to get any further. She's never going to put two or three wins together because she's never going to be able to control where the fight takes or be enough of a threat in the striking to not let opponents impose their will on her through wrestling or striking. That, that's the problem. She has no ability to control where the fight takes place because she has no ability to transition between ranges. You just can't be that that obvious and that limited in your skill set and think you're going to continue to take steps forward. There's just too many good athletes, especially with somebody like Jessica Andrade going in. You got Macy Barber coming back who already beat her. It, it's just she needs. I need to see the growth in her in her in her technique and her awareness. Even if she loses the fight, I need to see that she's taking the correct steps against somebody who's not going to serve themselves up to be submitted or serve themselves up to be taken down. I need to see her have to work out of bad spots and work to get in the good spot. Beating, running over somebody does her no good at this stage. We've already seen that. I need to see her win tough fights. I need to see her navigate rough waters. I need to see her figure out ways to get to where she needs to get without being desperate and without being predictable. So I, I'm looking forward to see the growth in her game. I've seen a little bit, but it's not enough for her to be a legitimate contender. I need to see more. True, true. So uh, why don't you let everybody know what you're working on, Shawan? We're going to go ahead and get ready to close out. Fill everybody in. What's on your radar? And what's, what are some things you got coming? Uh, I was thinking about doing a breakdown for, uh, once again, I've been researching the Cobra Kai thing. It just seems like something to be a lot of fun to do, and a lot of people seem to like the show. So I thought about doing that, and then Michael was suggesting maybe I could take some some of the characters from Black Lightning and do a breakdown of, of their some of the fight scenes they have between some of the main characters as far as breaking down the techniques and the uh, theory behind what they were doing in the fight. So I got two things for you. Something. You, so one, are you watching Cobra Kai at all? Uh, yeah, I, I watched. Yes, sir. Yeah, I just I just got through season one like last week, and I'm going to start season two this week. I love Corey, it. I'm so really mad good. that. I don't even the hell with the choreography. Uh, the choreography. I think the show's hilarious. Um, I am on the side of believing that Joey Lawrence, whatever his name is, was bullied, um, and that Mr. Miyagi and Daniel were the actual bullies in the first movies. You know, like that's where I I'm, think, I'm, I'm. I'm drawing a line. I think I'm on that I think side. Daniel. I think I think I agree with that. I think Daniel was more the bully. I think Mr. Miyagi was trying to be a protector and help him and he misconstrued the situation a lot of people like in back then in that movie 
he seemed like the victim. But if you take current events as they have now, there's lots of people who have money or people who like to be, you know, racial or political and make comments and can't defend themselves. So they pick fights with people they can't be up. And then when something happens, somebody else steps in, they, you know, I'm the victim. This person attacked me. This person raised their voice to me. It's like a Daniel's almost like a male Karen. Event, Ooh, essentially. That's a good analogy. Yep. And I don't want to say he's a horrible person, but I mean, he's petty as fuck in that show. I mean, <laughs> he's when he fucking, like, he, he gets their rent raised to try to close down the gym. That's the ultimate Karen move right there. Yeah, the, the guy the guy's out on his, you know, your kid ruins his car, so then you get mad because you have to replace the car. He tries to start a business and get, it, get his feet underneath him, so then you try to run him out of business, and then you start your own business, not to make people better, but just to spite him. What the hell is wrong with you? That's some rich white people shit because they got time to be worried about that and doing all that type of stuff. I mean, he's, that an, must he's be an nice. example. He's, he's an example of what happened because he was poor when he grew up, and Johnny used to have the money. And it's like you know, rich people are so terrible. When I become, when I get money, I'm going to show them how it's done and be a better person. Nah, you, 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 you became a worse person. Like, yeah, he's not the worst person. He's not a terrible person, but he, he this, this show does not paint him in the best light. Not paint him in the best light at all. I agree with that, sir. I agree. Um, the other thing is I was seeing there's a debate going on about fight scenes in comic movies, and people are debating what was the better fight scene, the scene between when Batman shows up in the warehouse and beats people up in, I think it was the second Batman, the, the second Nolan Batman, I believe. I can't remember uh, which exactly one it was. I, I think it was I the think, second I think Nolan that, Batman. I think that, that was Batman versus Superman when he showed up in the warehouse. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Batman versus Superman. They're comparing that to the elevator scene in Captain America, um, the Winter Soldier, and arguing which one is uh, better. I would like to see your thoughts on that. Oh, man. That is that. Now that I look at it, that's pretty tough. It's the elevator <laughs> scene. The, the answer is the elevator scene in, in Captain yeah. America, but I would love everyone to, to see why you think why. Yeah. Well, I mean, just because of the nature of it in, in the Batman one, if you're looking from a you're looking from a like you're looking at as a fight. He had all the advantages. Yeah, they have more people, but everybody's already scared of him. Nobody knows what he can really do. He takes the high ground, eliminates all their weapons. So basically, it's the be- the world's best hand to hand combatant against guys who probably aren't in the world's top two hundred as hand to hand combatants. They have more people, but he has better he has better tools, better technology, better skill sets, more experience. He basically outclasses all of them. In the Captain America one, he's basically at a disadvantage. He doesn't know who's on his side. He doesn't know who's not. They came prepared specifically to take down Captain America. They have tons of research, tons of film on him. They know all his moves. They they had they had weapons used to to basically break him down and to trap him. And they had a, they had a plan set. There there was a plan set to take down Captain America. That was all set up. They had the people they wanted in here. They had the tools they wanted. They had the time they wanted. They had the space they wanted. Because in a closed space, his strength is more of an issue, but his agility and his speed isn't because there's so many people around him that he can't move freely and uses his, his athleticism and his mobility. Against Batman, he, he had a lot of space, and he was in control. When he came out from underneath the floor, his guys were scared. They're panicked. They got all their weapons taken away. They were just posturing, trying to survive the night. These guys had a plan to actually take down Captain America. So Captain America was the better fight scene from that period because he was at every possible disadvantage. They came there looking for him. They came there. They they controlled where the fight took place. They controlled the pace of the fight. They had more tools. They had more weapons. 
and they had more manpower, and he still was able to find his way out of it, even though he had to adjust on the fly. Batman didn't have to adjust on the fly. He was in control of the situation from the minute the word from the word go. Well, there you go. So sir. If you just look at it from a pure a pure fighting. If this is a fight, it'd be like it's like an upset. You know, GSP has all these advantages. Matt's there, found a way to beat him. Batman was essentially like Anderson Silva um, beating up Forrest Griffin. Like, yeah, you hit him a couple of times, but he was basically in control of this fight. He let you hit him. He let you do your little thing, and then he put you there when he felt like it. When he got tired of this, he 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 put you away. I mean, I'm not even going to argue that, sir. That's right on. That's right on point there, man. Um, I am covering as much pro wrestling as possible. There's so much going on. There's so much going on. And um, I just want to get. I just want to sit down and cover as much as that, as much as that as I possibly can. There's some great wrestling going on. Um, it seems like Japan. a lot of people get hung up. People get hung up on the politics of wrestling. Like nine times when I see discussion, it's all about. And I know you have to pay attention to the business of it, but it's like you'll see if you see fifty thousand great matches, you'll see two hundred fifty thousand. They're doing this. They're not pushing this guy. They're burying this guy. And it's like those are interesting conversations because it, it, it invests me behind the scenes. But do you ever feel like that takes away from the actual pro- product being presented? Because we know so yes, much now about wrestling. It does. It makes it difficult to enjoy. Like we, there's actually a pretty interesting controversy going on. Right now, with a couple of wrestlers, more not even a couple, plenty of wrestlers on the WWE roster who are involved in all types of scandals. Like there's the Velveteen Dream, who a lot of people was hyped on. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, man, he was such an original character. His his character was built on um, basically Prince, uh, and he he kind of took the Prince stories um, or like like just a Prince motif and built that into a wrestling character that was amazing, but it comes to find out he has been accused of being a pedophile. So there's that. And uh, the WWE doesn't do anything about it. They keep him on the roster and they haven't made, they haven't even really, they talked about, they did some type of investigation into it, but we all know they that they really didn't look into that because clearly they didn't, um, the, the accusers that took the social media to talk about and show his DMs with them, they didn't speak to any of them. So they didn't really do an actual investigation around that. But um, that is probably the biggest situation. But there's plenty of other individuals on the roster who are just unscrupulous people. And it's like, great, like the, this is who they keep in the organization. And this is who we're going to have to watch. And they don't take them off of, off of um, TV. Matt Riddle, for example, you, I'm, you're, you're familiar with Matt Riddle, uh, who he is. And he has been... Um, involved in some multiple accusations of sexual assault so now and and like and he's on tv in a a prominent position and i mean there's people on on the roster that say that they don't want to work with them so it's a lot of situations that you watch like that and it's like man i can't i can't cheer for matt riddle even though as much as i enjoy his character and know that he's doing people like this out out in the street so it's 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 just a it's hard it's hard to follow uh, i just wonder if any of these guys understand that like right now you're saying because you're a moneymaker, at some point you're going to get injured, you're going to be less popular, and they're going to have no reason to protect you. And what ha- And I'm not saying I'm for their protection, but I wonder if they understand that you're on a time clock. Because wrestlers, they don't make, they're not making that kind of money where they can insulate themselves from this stuff past a certain point. So when, when that heat dies, or when you go in that downturn and you get that injury, what, you know, what happens then? 
That's a great question. What happens then? Because uh, they're not in a position to be bigger stars after this shit. And some of these guys need to get their acts together before things get, get, get much worse. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad, glad, I, glad they started. I mean, it's good that this stuff is getting exposed, but it's like, man, ugh, it's just... Now, you, you know, now if I, every time I now, because I wasn't, I, I hadn't heard it, it much about Matt Riddle because I don't always get caught up in that stuff. And now every time I hear his name, I'm just going to be like, I can't deal with this dude. You know, it's just, it's just terrible. And it's terrible that they're putting money over human lives again. Surprise, surprise. Yes, that's, that, that's, that's always been the situation, man. But that's what I'll be talking about this week, probably on the podcast. Maybe I'm actually going to do some writing later on tonight too as well. So I'll be covering some of that stuff. But thank you again for taking the time to be on the show with me, Schwan. Um, we'll be back next week. As always, as I mentioned, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at rgarcia underscore sports. Schwan, you can catch at Black Jordan Green. All of our content is available across multiple platforms, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, um, Breaker, or YouTube at MMA Ratings, Anchor as well. You can go to MMARatings.net to catch all of our flagship content there. And we will be back yeah. next week for another edition what, of the- One last thing before we, before go, we go. Anybody who knows Irina Adanya's coaching her camp, please have them call me because that was embarrassing. That was terrible. That was just the worst corner job I've ever seen. That was the worst preparation job I see. And I, I don't care about the excuses. She hurt her foot. She couldn't cut off the cage. What do we know about Holly Holm if you've watched film? She's impatient. So if you back off, Holly Holm does not have the patience to chip away at you for five rounds. She will start blitzing. She will start coming right at you. Line her up for the counters. Line her up for the takedowns. Your work is done for you. The fact that the people who were paid to develop her couldn't figure that out in five rounds, and I figured it out in a round and a half, is embarrassing. So if they had, need some new perspective or new ideas, please have them contact me on Twitter. If they don't, that's fine. I've had much better, much more successful fighters come to me for advice and use it. But if they just want to keep losing and having her get embarrassed like this, that's fine. I'm just offering my, I'm just offering my assistance because that was a chance to turn yourself into a star and legitimize yourself for a title fight, and you threw it away with the worst game plan and the worst execution of a game plan I have ever seen in world in women's mixed martial arts well someday Shawan, we're going to get people on um air and get them to um take some of your advice but until then man we'll we will be back next week with another edition of this show and i'm sure we'll have plenty 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 to uh talk about but all everyone, right have a good weekend everyone we'll be back next week